Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth, cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. You know, we we plan our episodes out like a month, month and a half in advance. We're mm-hmm. good little doobies and try to have an idea of what we're going to talk about, you know, in a month. Cause yeah, because smart. It, our podcast takes a lot of planning. It does. So. It takes a lot of planning. And we are well aware that due to current events being the hot garbage dumpster fire that they are Mm -hmm. um many people that we know many of our podcast friends are doing a podcast blackout and we heavily consider doing that as well yes because i think that's a great idea we fully support all of our friends and anybody who's doing it i think that's great yes however yeah i uh, think we had this this episode planned out for at least a month month and a half now um and the person that is in the forefront of this whole story is a very progressive black man mm-hmm. who is extremely underrated yes. in rock music and is often forgotten about. Yeah. So it made more sense to us to tell his story, tell his band's story, because everybody needs to know his story. Yeah, I agree. I think that's important. I think just as important as the silence you can also celebrate yeah. black lives. Yeah. I think to tell a story that's important. Yeah, I think his is. Yeah. It's, I guess, not as typical a story and not as typical a life as a lot of people of color experience in America. Of course. Because his takes place in Ireland in the 60s and 70s, 80s. But there's still elements of racism. There's still elements of doubt and there's still things that affected him in his life that affect a lot of people of color still yeah. so and, and i do believe i correct me if i'm wrong but and there is a lot of working class yes uh anger and yes. they i from what i understand this band represents a lot of that uh sentimentality yeah so we decided to tell the story of thin lizzie yes anyway because Thin Lizzy is its front man, Phil Linet, and he needs the respect that he deserves. Yeah. So I think I yeah. think it's good to bring more attention to their story. Because even in the world of music and rock specifically, you hear Thin Lizzy's name a lot, but I don't know their story. Yeah. You may have heard the boys are back in town, but do you oh. know any of their other stuff? Did you know that they had like nine studio albums? Yeah. And they're bangers? Yeah. BT dubs? Yeah. And Jailbreak is their song, too. <laughs> and Jailbreak is a Thin Lizzy song, too. Every so. time I hear it, I'm like, right, this is Thin Lizzy. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, on top of that, you know that Whiskey in a Jar cover that Metallica, Metallica did? did? They fucking ripped it off of Thin Lizzy I mean, so hard. They <laughs> said they were doing the Thin Lizzy cover of Whiskey in the Jar. Yeah, but any casual Metallica listener will not know that it was their version was originally done by Thin Lizzy. And also, James really butchers those vocals. Excuse me, it's Whiskey in the Jarro. Jarro. <laughs> I was going over the Cork and Carry Mountains. 
Okay. Oh, but anyway, yeah, well, we're sorry. not talking about Metallica. We're talking yeah, about Thin Lizzy because we're a rock candy podcast. Oh, you did it. <laughs> and I'm Ashley. And I'm Maggie. <laughs> and we're giving you a sweet treat of a story this week. Yeah. Despite the, the spicy times, we thought it was still appropriate. So oh, I don't. It's doing. not even spicy anymore. Like, it's just we've, literally we've, on fire. We've hit like actual just, I don't remember the word for it, but just the bad times. Yeah. Like complete disillusionment. Disenfranchisement. Yes. Of 2020. Um, you know, the fact that this is all still happening. And I don't think we want to talk too much about it in the sense that we're two white people. We're not going to sit around and tell you guys how to feel about it or how And think we're about not going to sit around and talk about our feelings no. about it. Because our feelings don't fucking matter. No. What matters is we're telling this story and we're doing our fucking best yep. to try and help the people whose voices need to be heard. Yeah. So. Yeah. Let's do that then. Let's tell the story of Thin Lizzy. Yes. Oh. Never mind. I was going to talk about beer. But we don't have a beer. Oh, yeah, that's right. Another announcement. <laughs> yeah. Really um, quick before we start up. Really quick. You know how we didn't just talk about a beer? Because we decided not to do that anymore. Like, we're still drinking. Yeah, don't worry about that. And if and we're still going to highlight beers that, A, we really care about, B, think are really good, or C, actually are thematic. Because we're not going to give it up entirely. It's just... We're not going to bust our fucking asses to find every a beer week. that we don't really like. Yeah, to find a beer that we're not going to like, that we don't really want to drink. That's a stretch at best. That is a stretch at best. To fitting the category. Exactly. So if we find one that is clearly in a reference to a, a musician we're talking about, then yeah, we'll drink it. Otherwise, we're just going to drink. Yeah. This week I'm drinking uh, Rare Form. I'm drinking Practically Magic. Oh, yeah. One of I our would, favorites. I would say, you know. Then Lizzie could be practically magic. That is true. Because that their tunes, and their honestly, tunes are hot. You also have another one called uh, "Smoke on the Pilsner," which is clearly a reference to "Smoke on the Water." Yeah, by Deep Purple, Deep Purple which has nothing to do with Thin Lizzy. They do one hundred percent. They do. Oh, so it kind of works. The, the, oh, Deep Purple is going to pop up. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. I'm glad that you pointed that out. Yeah, you might be like, why are you drinking two Crowlers, Maggie? And I'm going to say, because (laughs) I didn't drink for a week. They didn't know it was Crowlers. Well, now you know I'm drinking two Crowlers because I didn't drink for a week. And you're making up for last time. So Shit's been cray lately. I earned this. (laughs) But yeah, now that that that's out of the way, let's, let's talk about Thin Lizzy. Let's do it. Thin Lizzy was one of those bands that you couldn't take your eyes off of. There's a lot of reasons for that, the biggest of which was the dynamism of the band's lead singer and bassist, Phil Lynott. Fuck yeah, basses! <laughs> There's no question that he was the very first black Irishman to achieve commercial success in the world of music. Yeah. There is also no question that his extraordinary life ended tragically and way too soon. I don't like this. We really couldn't have picked a better band to talk about this week, considering the media coverage as of late. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, Tony McDade, and so many more people of color became victims of white violence in the last couple of weeks. Although Phil's eventual death was not directly at the hands of white people, it still was caused by an epidemic that disproportionately affects far more people of color than white people, and that is drug abuse. Oh, damn it. We can officially say day zero 
No heroin. No heroin. <sighs> Sorry. Okay. Mark your calendars. All right. Thin Lizzy started in Dublin, Ireland in 1969. It was one of those bands that had a revolving door of guitarists, but Phil Lynott and drummer Brian Downey were the pillars that held the band up throughout its tenure. Brian was born in Dublin on January 27, 1951, and grew up in the suburb of Crumlin. Okay. Which sounds so Russian. It's probably pronounced something completely different. Crumlin. Something like that. I don't know. Crumlin. Yeah. He was heavily influenced by jazz as a child, and when he started playing drums, that jazz influence could be easily distinguished. He grew up in a musical household with a father that played in an Irish pipe band. It was his father that introduced him to jazz and his favorite rock bands, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, and of course, the Beatles. Of course. Of course. Everyone. Everyone loved the Beatles. Everyone loves the Beatles. Brian took his love of playing drums with him throughout school, joining various bands with his peers, like the Liffy Beats. The Liffy Beats. I think that's how you say it. Yeah. Okay. That sounds right. Yeah. And ModCon Cave Dwellers. I don't know. That sounds like a name that someone would call a band. Things were weird in the 60s in Dublin, I feel like. I think things are still weird in Dublin. Probably. I'm going to say it. Yeah. Things are still weird. Yeah. That's what keeps Dublin interesting. True. But once he met Phil Lina, everything changed. Phil had a much different much more unconventional childhood than Brian. He was born Philip Paris Lina on August 20th, 1949, in West Bromwich, England. His mother, Philomena Lina, was an 18-year-old white woman from Dublin, Ireland, yeah. and his father, Cecil Paris, was a black man from Guyana. Wow. This guy's multicultural AF. Yeah. yeah. Cecil and Philomena had met in Birmingham in 1949 and were only in a relationship for a few months when Cecil was trans transferred to London for work. Shortly after his departure, Philomena found out she was pregnant. Oh, she was pregnant? Yeah, and pregnant aunt. Oh, no. Hope she didn't get any starch masks. <laughs> Although she was unmarried and did not continue a relationship with Cecil, she decided to keep the baby. Okay. That's her choice. Absolutely, it's her choice. Good for her. That's the thing about choice. You can do whatever you want. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> Philomena moved to Manchester when Phil was of school age and stayed there for several years. And for his part, Cecil was fine with this arrangement, kept in touch with Philomena, and paid child support throughout Phil's childhood. Oh. Wow. So, this is like him. the most responsible like, setup I've ever heard I know. in my GD life. Yeah, the most responsible 50s non-married relationship that ever existed yeah like this is the gold star standard of unconventional child rearing yeah exactly huh all right phil entered school in the mid-50s attending a moss side school in manchester but since children are assholes sometimes he oh yeah he experienced quite a bit of racism there oh come on yeah, right Wait, where was this again? They were still in England, or did she go back to Ireland it, at this point? He was in Manchester. Okay, so he's still in England. Yeah. Really? Manchester? Yeah. Really, guys? Yeah. Come on. Fucking cunts. <laughs> and children were not kind to the mixed-race boy, so Philomena sent him to Dublin to live with his grandparents, Frank and Sarah. Because Dublin's the fucking shit. <laughs> it's, uh, at this point, it was at least better than Manchester, I guess. This move had good and bad results. For the first time, Phil had a father figure in his life in the form of his grandfather. 
but the absence of his real father had a significant effect on him anyway, leading to feelings of abandonment and worthlessness. And it would be something Phil struggled with throughout his life. So his dad basically... He would send money, but that was he just yeah. had nothing really to do with his life. Yeah, and I think later in life, his dad came back and found him, and it really kind of spiraled him Ooh. into this like weird mental health kind of thing. It was like a too little, too late kind of situation, right? And you, at this point, I've come to a a place that I'm okay with, and you coming back just blew that up. Yep, so. like he's finally like, guys, I did it, <laughs> and his dad's like, hello, son, and he's like, fuck. <laughs> Well, not going to use a therapist, going to do heroin. Yep. Oh, God. Yep. <laughs> I have, We have been doing this for too long. Yeah. It is so predictable now. Same old shit, guys. Same old shit, different dealer. It also meant he didn't spend as much time with his mother. Although she kept in touch with him and the two continued to become closer as he grew up, Philomena was more of a sister or a friend to him than a mother. Well, she was so young when she had him, too. Right. By all means, she was a cool mom, though. <laughs> she's you not like regular moms regular moms she's a cool she's mom. A cool mom what do you kids need some condoms oh you keep me oh, young you keep, you keep me up so he's got a rad dad and a cool mom i guess she he has an absent dad and a cool mom oh, okay it's not a rad and, dad <laughs> almost almost as bad yeah supposedly she even introduced him to drugs rolling up his first joint for him at age 13 i mean maybe not Maybe don't do that. Maybe but don't also, be that cool. But also, I'm not going to begrudge her anything. Because, like, it's not like she was like, here, here's all the street drugs. She was just like, nah, here's some weed. Weed's fine. She probably, you know what, though? I still look at it the same way I look at alcohol. And I wouldn't give a 13-year-old booze. No. Like, if your kid's, like, 16, 17, and you're like, you're going to go out and do it anyway, like, I'd rather you just do it here. Yeah. Not 13. Maybe wait a couple years. If you can drive a car, you can smoke a joint. Yeah. That's kind of, that would be my rule. Just don't role. do at the, two at the same time. That's why we're not parents. Yeah. Because I would definitely, <laughs> like, that would be the house rule. If you can drive a car, you can smoke a joint. Yeah. You get your license, you can have a joint. <laughs> not at the same time. Not at, nowhere near each you other. You can have a beer and a joint, but that's only one of each. Yeah. Not at <laughs> the same time. Just one. Not Wait. at the same time. <laughs> and you can't drive while you're doing those things. This is why we're not parents. Oh my God, I've made so many weird rules for myself. <laughs> oh, Anyway. By the time Phil was a young teenager, she had bought the Clifton Grange Hotel with her longtime partner, Dennis Keeley, in Manchester. Oh. I should say, Philomena was a pretty extraordinary woman. She was like... First of all, her name's Philomena? Yeah. Which is a bougie-ass name. Yeah. But, I mean, her family wasn't bougie. She was just extremely progressive for her time. Okay. Um, She was really, like... You know, racial equality, um, gender equality, everything Clearly. like that. And really, after Phil passed away, she really, like, took the reins to keep his memory alive. Oh, So good for her. She was great. But this hotel would become a legendary hangout for touring rock bands and a hotspot for raucous parties and debauchery. It was often the only hotel in the city that would host bad reputation bands like Sex Pistols. Oh. And they they knew her. They loved her. So they didn't fuck around. You know, yeah. If you can make a reputation for yourself as being the cool place, but so cool that you don't want it to get shut down. Yeah. You're going to treat it good. Exactly. Because if that's the only hotel in Manchester that's going to host you, 
better be nice. It's called don't shit where you eat. Yeah. Don't. (laughs) On his visits to Manchester as a young teen, this had to be pretty influential on Phil. Also influential to him was his uncle's record collection. It always is. It always is. It's always your weird uncle's record collection. His uncle was listening to bluesy rock bands like the Yardbirds and the Who, but also had a lot of Motown records for good measure. And these sounds came became ingrained in Phil's DNA. It was this mix of blues, rock, and soul that would become the basis of Thin Lizzy's sound. Yeah. One, 100%. Yeah. By all means, Phil was a pretty nerdy kid. He loved comic books and gravitated towards the lone wolf characters. In a way, he saw himself in these heroes, a solitary man against the world making his own way in life. He was a lone black boy in Dublin, set apart from everyone else because of the color of his skin. Although he didn't face a whole lot of racism in Ireland, I would say he faced the quote-unquote well-meaning racism of kids in the 60s. More of racism out of ignorance, not out of hate. Yeah, like people like, can I touch your hair? Yes. Because they were like, ooh, this alien black boy. I've never (laughs) seen one before. Yeah, and not to justify it, but it's not justifiable. Definitely, like, did not realize at the time, yeah, how fucking bad that was. That's definitely a much more recent, I guess, discovery for white people. Yeah, that that is damaging. Yeah, like finally, black people are like, can you stop? And we're like, oh, we're assholes. Well, wow, some of us are saying that. Yeah, I mean, I've never done it, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um. But he sounds like a really cool kid that I would have loved to hang out with. Yeah. And, like, he still felt different because he looked different. Eventually, he grew to accept and appreciate his otherness, but it still made him feel alone. Yeah. And one thing that made him feel a little less alone was diving into Celtic history and fantasy. Although he was born in England, he considered himself an Irishman through and through, and no one could really argue otherwise. That's it. He took pride in his Irish roots and often incorporated Celtic legends into his lyrics. Yeah. And it was lyric writing that first occupied Phil's time, along with singing. He wouldn't play an instrument until much later. Oh. Instead, he fancied himself a front man, but he had a lot of work to do when it came to stage <laughs> presence. Despite the fact that he idolized comic book macho men and Celtic heroes, he just didn't have as much confidence as they did. Who does? I don't know. I mean, I didn't lose Uncle Ben, so how can I be Spider-Man? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I don't have animantium bones, so how can I be Wolverine? I don't have cum webs coming out of my hands, so how can I be Spider-Man? <laughs> <laughs> that's how it works, right? That's, that's comic books. <laughs> comic books, it's just cum webs. Cum webs, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of cum webs. I, I was like, she's. this is where we're going with this. Okay. So our sponsors are Adam and Eve. AdamandEve.com. So you can go to AdamandEve.com and you can get one thing for 50% off. Almost anything on their website. Yep. And then you get something for him, something mm-hmm. for her, and something for you both. Yeah. That's something three you can share. free gifts along with that 50% off. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, at checkout, you get six... Free movie films. <laughs> yes. Movie films. Movie films. One of them might involve a cum-slinging Spider-Man. Could. You Please never know. Please don't hold us to that. It might not. But also, if it does, you need to tell us. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But on top of all that stuff, you get we're free shipping. Yeah. yeah, we're not done. 
You get free shipping also. All you have to do is at checkout, use our code CANDYPOD. That's C-A-N-D-Y-P-O-D. Not the band. Not the band. But you will feel so alive. Indeed you will. So AdamEve.com, CandyPod, and get yourself some free shit. And cumwebs. And cumwebs. All right, let's continue our story. Yeah, yeah, let's talk more about Thin Lizzy. <laughs> well, either way, Phil landed his first gig in 1963 at age 16 as frontman in a band called the Black Eagles. Oh. It was in this group that Phil and Brian would first play together, starting in 1965 when Brian quit the Liffy Beats and joined Black Eagles. Fuck these Liffy Beats. Done. Going to the Black Eagles. <laughs> Done with this. More like lousy beats. Ha! Your beats are lousy, and then they're like, but you're the drummer, and he's like, fuck you, I'm leaving. Kicked over a guitar stand. Right, like, I'm out of here. And like, <laughs> makes like the feedback noise. <laughs> this is your fault. I feel like this is just like a continuation of Jack Black in School of Rock. <laughs> Somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Believable. Read between the lines. <laughs> The boys knew each other from school already, but Brian was busy with his various bands while Phil was still daydreaming of being of fronting a band. Mm. This was also when Phil started dabbling in harder drugs than weed. God damn it. His former bandmates remember him taking what was basically speed, which helped him feel more comfortable on stage. But isn't that the way? That's always what it is. is somebody's like, I need speed, so it gives me the high energy that I need to yeah. be able to perform on stage. Yeah. And it's usually the next thing, especially back in the 60s and 70s, after weed, people are like, speed. I need something a little... Because weed slows you down. Yeah. But speed speeds you up. Oh, boy. I wasn't trying to do that. I just realized yeah. what I was doing. I guess he hadn't, he hadn't learned of the Fleetwood Mac method yet. He did not have Coke and Cognac yet. Yeah, no, not yet. The band only lasted a couple years until things fell apart in 1967. Phil and Brian went their separate ways, Brian to drum for a local band called Sugar Shack, and Phil to front Skid Row. Not that Skid Row. I was like, what? This was an Irish band put together by Brush Shields and also included guitarist Gary Moore, who we will see again later. Okay, see you soon, Gary. Skid Row did pretty de- pretty decently, playing shows around Dublin with a repertoire that included Jimi Hendrix and Beatles covers, along with some originals. Hmm. Phil spent his time in the band working on his frontman skills. He engaged the audience more and even performed mock fights with Brush on stage. <laughs> but it would what? be a long time before he grew the confidence you see later in Thin Lizzy. You know what's going to give you confidence? Getting your ass kicked on stage. By a guy named Brush. <laughs> <laughs> He just comes out with a brush and beats you with it. His brush is beat with his brush. Dusts you off. Or oh, like dusts his hair. Dusts the floor in front of him so you have a nice fighting area. Yeah. With the brush. With the brush. It was during this time with Skid Row that Phil became a father for the first time. What? His girlfriend's father was a military man and having a child out of wedlock was absolutely not possible. The couple were therefore forced to give the child up for adoption in 1968. It wasn't until 2010, decades after Phil's untimely death, that Philomena acknowledged that McDara Lamb is indeed Phil's son. Wow. 
And I did forget, yes, this is very Catholic Ireland. It's like, you can't yeah. get an abortion, but you also can't keep your baby. Exactly. And then you're like, but I want to keep the baby. And they're like, well, too fucking bad. Well, you guys want to get married? No. Okay, well, kid's out of here. You're out of here, kid. Yeah. Good fucking luck. <laughs> As fate would have it, Brian and Phil found themselves together again after things didn't work out in their respective bands. Getting the band back together. Sugar Shack folded and Skid Row kicked Phil out after a televised performance went wrong. Oh, no. Brush was already growing concerned with Phil's tendency to sing off-key, and by the time Phil came back after tonsil surgery, Brush oh, no. had taken over the singing duties. Oh, no. Brush is such an asshole. These weren't mock <laughs> fights. Brush was he like was really pissed. <laughs> Either way, Phil and Brush stayed friends. Oh. And as a consolation prize, Brush taught Phil how to play bass. Oh. He was still mastering his bass skills when he and Brian teamed up to form a new band called Orphanage. Hold on. So Phil gets kicked out of the band. But then and he's yeah, like. Brush is like, I feel real bad. So. I'm going to make you do more work. I'm going to teach you bass. Teach you bass. And it's like, wait, really, bass? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to get any of the ladies with bass. Yeah, probably not. Well, But here you go. Well, that's what you got to work on. <laughs> you need something. It's the bass. <laughs> we don't have enough bass players, Phil. All right? Like, we have plenty <laughs> of guitarists, plenty of lead singers. We got this one drummer, and he's really good, so just fucking play bass. Can you just learn the fucking bass? <laughs> just pluck a couple strings, yeah. damn it. Yeah. So they started another band called Orphanage. Brian was on drums naturally, and Phil took frontman duties and occasionally played rhythm guitar. In the meantime, two Irish musicians named Eric Bell and Eric Rickson, the Erics, Erics. were searching for a new band to put together after they left the band Them, which was the band Van Morrison was in before going solo. Oh. Yes. I did not know that. After seeing an Orphanage show one evening... They were so impressed with Brian, and slightly less so with Phil, Oh, Phil! that they asked the two to start a band. Yeah, Phil was still having some stage fright issues. Oh my god. At this point, like, how long has it been, though? It's been a while, but, like, he's trying. They're getting real stained with it. Yeah. It's been a while. (laughs) But they're God-smacking it. Well, he's trying to. At least he's not Papa Roaching it. Oh, boy. Oof. No. So Brian and Phil did... Join a band with the Erics, mm-hmm. but they had conditions. Oh. First, they wanted Phil to sing and play bass. Oh, God. <laughs> Was he like, fucking really, guys? <laughs> Come on. Why? They also wanted to perform some of Phil's original songs. Oh, okay. He played some of them for Eric Bell, and he was so impressed that he emphatically said yes. All right, there we go. He's got a talent. Got it. All right. Thus, the band was formed, but they still needed a name. Hmm. On February 18th, 1970, the band officially announced their name, Thin Lizzy. They got the name from a comic called The Dandy that had a robot character named Tin Lizzy, which is also the nickname for a Ford Model T car. Okay. The reason they became Thin Lizzy instead of Tin Lizzy Mm. was because they were taking the piss out of Dubliners who would pronounce their THs as As T's. So if you're a Dubliner and you're saying their name, you're still saying Tin Lizzy. Yeah. Instead of saying three, you say tree. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, oh, I know it. Don't don't I fucking know it. 
So I've been to Ireland plenty of times, spent plenty of time there. And sometimes, when, you know, when you go somewhere that you've been a while, you pick up the dialects and you just yeah. kind of fall back into it. And, you know, so I'll start to pick up the, the few little things like, sure, it's grand. And who's your man there? And, you know, it's it's half four. And that's if I've been there for a real long time, I'm like, yeah, tree thirty. Fuck. I like uh, when they say 33. Tur- tree. <laughs> Wait, trees are time? Yeah. It, when I first got there the first time, I was very confused. I'm like, yeah. tree? Three. <laughs> you oh. thought they told time with trees. Yeah. But you know what? Mm-hmm. That's why Americans need to travel more. Yeah. Like, that's not why, but I would just like to throw it out there. Little PSA. Fucking, instead of sending your kid to college right away, throw them in Europe. For like a month. Allow them to experience other cultures. Because like that's real fucking important. Yeah, it is. God, I learned a lot. <laughs> the band played their first show on a Friday the 13th in 1970 at a school hall in Dublin. <laughs> Although their first manager recalls the band not being very nervous before the show, subsequent shows proved just how much Phil suffered from stage fright. Oh. His nervousness prevented him from saying anything intelligible to the audience fumbling words, and eventually devolved into just awkward mumbling. Oh. Their manager even had to write rehearsed lines for him to say to the crowds. <gasps> what? Yeah, it was really, really bad. People didn't realize that Phil was like the leader of Thin Lizzy. They thought it was Eric Bell because every time they would play, he would just kind of like shuffle off to the side and let Eric do his thing. <laughs> yeah. He's like, if I'm lucky, Eric's just going to do this for yeah. me. And then I can just drink and and play the bass. Play and the bass. Sing a little. Snort a little coke, and everything will be fine. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. snort a little coke. Won't that help your your ego a little bit there? Yeah, yeah. Because Dutch courage helped a lot, as did copious amounts of drugs. Dutch courage. Um, drinking. That's you know, liquid courage. That's... I've never heard it referred to as Dutch courage. Yeah, Dutch courage is another word for lots of drinking. I never knew that. I don't know where that came from, but yeah. That's what it's called. And I learned something today. There you go. Look at that. You learn things every day when you're talking about alcoholics. Yay. (laughs) As Phil's stage presence got better, his drug habit got worse. The drugs may have been the only reason he was able to even be on stage. Sounds legit. Yeah. Thin Lizzy's self-titled debut album was released on April 30th, 1971. By now, they were signed to Decca Records, and Eric Rickson had left the band to rejoin them, capital T. He's <laughs> like, Van has a great deal for me. I gotta go back to them. Oh, I, think, I think Van had left by now. Ne- Van left, so that them, them is gonna do so much better now. <laughs> oh, honey. Yeah. You tried. The album didn't do particularly well, and the same went for their follow-up EP. Still, Decca stuck with them and financed the release of their second album, Shades of Blue Orphanage. Oh. Critics weren't too kind to this album either, claiming it sounded disjointed, which made sense because the band was on pretty shaky ground at the time. Their albums were busts, and Phil flirted with the idea of leaving to start a band with Deep Purple's Richie Blackmore and Ian Pace. And there's Deep Purple! Yeah, which never actually happened. That would have been an interesting combo. Yeah, he was really good friends with Richie Blackmore. Oh, And, like, collaborated with him on random shit throughout. It's ironic, then, that in 1972, the band was asked to record an album of Deep Purple covers. They did so under the name Funky Junction, 
A band, a band that existed only for that recording. Okay. They did it merely because they needed the money since music wasn't raking in the big bucks yet. That's legit. Yeah. Their luck changed at the end of 1972 when they landed a gig opening for the band Slade. If you don't know who Slade is. That sounds so familiar. Because Slade is a very big influence on Devin Townsend. Oh, <laughs> so if you don't know who Slade is, first of all, big influence on Devin Townsend, so that can give you a bit number one yeah. reason why Ashley likes them. <laughs> I don't really know Slade very well, but yeah, please take a minute to do a Google image search before continuing because wow. I, I have so many questions about the way this band looks. Yeah. yeah. The outfits alone, let alone the haircuts and the It's really the that unibrows. one guy's hair. That got one yeah. guy, and he committed. He really did. He never gave up on it. He never saw a bang that he didn't chop right off. <laughs> he was like, bangs, I don't know what to do with these. I better I just, just cut them off. off. And it's like, but you could just let it grow out and sweep it to the side. Nope, chopping it off. <laughs> I don't know if they're British. I just decided they, they are were. British. Yes, they're, they are. Oh, good. <laughs> Just feels like a weird Monty Python skit at that point. They do. And I thought the same thing. I'm like, they kind of look like they directly influence Monty Python. Or like, this is Spinal Tap, maybe? It's probably Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap had to have taken some influence from them. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) But Tin Lizzy definitely took influence from them. Yeah. Tin Lizzy. Tin Lizzy. Tin Lizzy took influence from them. Um, Especially when it came to the one guy that wore the top hat with the mirrors on it. Was because, he steampunk? I don't know. <laughs> he was something. He was something. He was something. But Phil really liked the mirrors on his hat. So then Phil put mirrors on his base. Oh, and that's that kind of ended fun. up being like his style for. And then you blind the audience yeah, numbers. Yeah, it's cool. It's great. People it's love time. it. Everybody, the, it drove the crowd wild. They really did. Really, all yeah. of those screams were actually their eyes searing out of their skulls. But you know, they thought it was really great. Yeah, and the crowd really dug it. Did you hear all the screams tonight? I, I think they don't like the mirrors on your base, Phil. Nah, that's not it. There goes Phil, setting the place on fire with his mirrors again. It's fine. We'll it's pay fine. for it's it. Cool. We're gonna release the boys are back in town and basically live off that one song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Slade was at the top of their success at this point, so Thin Lizzy opening for them was going to get them a lot of exposure. Who the fuck is Slade? <laughs> Slade is one of those bands that was really popular in Europe and England, and we never heard about them. Okay. Ever. Okay, because I'm like, yeah, Thin Lizzy, that's going to get them exposure. Who the fuck is Slade? However, I do believe Slade was the original, um, they originally did, um, Come On, Feel the Noise. Oh. That was them. And then Quiet Riot covered it. it. Covered All right. It. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Decca then decided to release the band's cover of a traditional Irish song called Whiskey in the Jar. Oh. Excuse me. Whiskey in the jar <laughs> Thank you, James Hetfield. <laughs> These days, it's one of Thin Lizzy's most popular and recognizable songs. However, at the time, the band was pissed that Decca even released it. They oh. felt it didn't represent their sound at all. The sound was fine, but I could see how maybe they were like, oh, we don't want to, you know, release this silly little traditional tune. Yeah, but at the same time, it kind of does have all of the elements of a classic Thin Lizzy song. Yeah. It's Celtic, for Mm -hmm. starters. 
Um, it has instances of the twin guitar harmonies that they became known for. Um, it's like all about oh, this. The twin guitar harmonies on that are fucking Very fantastic. Um, it's not even like the best song that they have that Mm-mm. has the, the twin guitars, but still like it has it's a all... great example. of yeah, it. Yeah. It's a, and it's a great example of a thin Lizzy song. I get it. It's like kind of down temple. It's not raucous or whatever, but they it's don't so... want that to be their single. Exactly. They don't want that to be what they're, it's they don't their want... creep. They don't want, <laughs> it is their creep. I'm sorry. From now on, I will refer to a single that people are like, it's not really what I want to be remembered it's creep by. by Radiohead. It's their Radiohead's creep. Yeah. T- definitely. I was like, play that song about the jar whiskey. And people are like, hell, play the fucking whiskey in the jar song. God. Yeah. You know what? It's better than a uh, hair of the dogs version of it. I've never heard of it. I've well, never heard it. I don't know her. So <laughs> do you, you know, hair of the dog. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, they do. A, they do a version of it. And it's very traditional. Blah. But also like, I just don't like hair of the dog. Yeah. Fight me. I'm not going to fight you on that. I, I get it. They're Irish and everything, but I just don't like them. Yeah. It's just a little too corny for me. Yeah. If you take Celtic music and you go corny with it, yeah, instead of corny. paying homage and doing it a bit serious, yeah. a little more serious with the right amount of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of fucked it up. But they couldn't be mad for long because the song blew up. It reached number six in the UK and got them an appearance on Top of the Pops. Ah, our favorite. Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops. Mm, yes. But once again, their follow-up album, Vagabonds of the Western World, which is probably one of the best album names I've ever heard in my life, yep. couldn't continue the momentum. Like their previous albums, it got a lot of airplay in Ireland, but just couldn't make a splash anywhere else. Huh. Even in England? Yeah, it was Scotland? like okay in England, but... Ireland was like their their bread and butter. Yeah. Mm. That Carrie Gold butter, man. I miss I miss gluten. Oh. <laughs> I miss it a lot. Oh. Don't talk about bread. There was a lot of frustration floating around at that time. Eric Bell quit the band after a show in on New Year's Eve in 1973, right in the middle of a tour. God damn it, Eric. But Phil's friend and former Skid Row bandmate Gary Moore swooped in to finish the tour. Good job, Gary. But only stayed with the band until nineteen until April 1974, after they had recorded their next album, Nightlife. God damn it, Gary. Gary. <laughs> Nightlife went the way of the rest of their albums, but honestly, this album is pretty fucking tight and highly underrated. Yeah, this is a really good album. We get much deeper emotions from Phil's lyrics here, and some of the songs explore his childhood, his relationship with his mother, and his coming to terms with his blackness. Mm. There's an exploration of his roots in here that some criticized in a shut up and sing kind of way that was completely unjustified, but now should be celebrated. Oh, 100%. And there's one song on the album i think it's like still loving you still in love with you still in love with you thank you and i don't know who's singing with him Mm -hmm. but like they do they do some good shit yeah because there's definitely another guy on that track and they're both singing and it's that's a really beautiful song yeah it's really well done i will circle back around to that song oh shortly oh no yeah oh by the time Night- Damn it. <laughs> by the time Nightlife was finished, Thin Lizzy had cycled through a few guitarists and settled on Brian <laughs> Robertson and Scott Gorham. So now they got two Brians. Now there's two Brians instead of two Erics. There's no Erics but two Brians. Eric's gone. 
Enter two Bryans. Two Bryans enter the ring. <laughs> two Eric's leave, two Bryans <laughs> enter. <laughs> Brian had temper Brian Downey had temporarily quit also. Oh, having having been fed up with the music industry and the band. That's legit. He rejoined just in time to see Nightlife go absolutely nowhere. Oh no. Things started to change for Thin Lizzy in 1975 after a high-profile tour of the U.S. opening for Bob Seger and Bachman Turner Overdrive, who were riding high on the success of their song, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. Thank you. That's what they would, he would just come out before every, every performance, like, guys, these are our friends, Tin Lizzy, and you ain't seen nothing yet. And they're like, you don't have to sing the song. He's like, guys, I have a stutter. Fuck you. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, we're real sorry, mate. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Their next album, Fighting, was released later that year. And finally, a Thin Lizzy album gained some ground in the UK album charts. Because Fighting is a fucking great it's album. And that so song, good. the song Fighting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is so good. Yeah, it is. That's a fucking giant. Fighting. 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 I feel like I'm fighting when they hear it. This was the album that Thin Lizzy finally figured out their sound. Yay. Up-tempo rock songs that highlighted twin guitar harmonies mixed with Phil's poetic storytelling in his lyrics. Yep. They had another great tour opening for Status Quo, then immediately went into the studio to record their next album, Jailbreak. Because it's the 70s and we can't stop. Can't stop, won't won't stop. stop. Album every year. Maybe two. Could be three if you're really ambitious. Just like Spider-Man with them cumwebs. Just going and going <laughs> One and after going. another. Can't stop, won't stop. Come on, feel the noise. <laughs> Come on, feel my spitterwebs. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Though their tours were successful and the band was kind of coasting on moderate UK success, their label at the time, Vertigo Records, was on their last straw with the band. But they're doing well. Yeah. Well, just started doing well, kind of. They gave <laughs> Thin Lizzy one more chance to deliver, and the band finally did. Jailbreak was a fitting title, as this was Thin Lizzy's breakout album. Ah! Ha-ha! Let's see what you did there. Though they were already decently known in the UK and had had two or three successful US tours, they hadn't had any popular singles or charting albums there yet. That all changed when the song The Boys Are Back in Town was released. Didn't it, though? Yeah. It did. Now you have it in your head. I've had it in my head all night. The boys are back in town. The song cracked the top 20 in the U.S. thanks mostly to two DJs in Louisville, Kentucky, who played the shit out of the song until other stations started picking up on it. Guys, do you hear how fucking good this song is? Fucking song. Actually, big. Hey, y'all hear how good this song is, though? It's a real fucking jam, isn't it? Y'all come back now to KWROC. K-Rock. Signing off. Going to Shoney's. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry, guys. Shoney's is awful. I think I got food poisoning at Shoney's. <laughs> it was pretty bad. It was not great. Oh. So we, excited for it, too. I know, because we didn't know it existed. We thought it was just something Rick and Morty made. <laughs> and it wasn't. It's real. It's and it's real. terrible. They're awful. 
meet up with us on They're, Friday at Shoney's. It's basically just Southern Denny's. Yeah, which, yeah. it's And that's not a compliment. And there was no Grand Slam. No Grand Slam. <laughs> no Grand Slam no, at Shoney's. There was no Grand Slam on the menu, but you were doing a Grand Slam in the toilet later oh, that night. Mostly with the puking, yes. Yeah. Ugh. not a grand slam it's a grand <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway let's keep going okay the song's popularity was a complete surprise to the band who didn't even want to put the song on the album to begin with so is this their creep then <laughs> no no whiskey in the jar is uh definitely their creep oh okay because they were fine with boys are back in town they just weren't initially going to put it on the album okay which is usually how it happens with like breakout hits they like they don't think that's gonna be the hit. Right. They think no one's gonna fucking like this song, and then everyone <laughs> loves this fucking song because they highly overestimate their audiences every time. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the album encompassed everything Thin Lizzy was about, dipping into t- lyrical wells that Phil loves so much. Cowboy song told the story of a lone cowboy wandering around the U.S., painting a romantic scene of a lonely man searching for love. Emerald is clearly about Ireland and its battle-rich history, Mm -hmm. and Warriors was about the pitfalls of being a rock star addicted to drugs. Oh. Yeah, this is... This is some deep cuts here. Phil knew firsthand what it was like being one of those junkie rockers. By now, he had a full-blown heroin addiction compounded by coke and alcohol addictions. Did the heroin just kind of come along as another way to deal with having to be on stage? Yeah. It was pretty much one of those, I'm going to just get as high as I can without killing myself and then go on stage because I think heroin gave him the confidence to be a different person on stage. It gave him the confidence to like be the macho man, the macho front man and, you know, the entertainer that he always wanted to be. I guess. I don't know. I always just look at heroin as such a like a spacey drug. That I, I always wonder how people have any grasp but on reality when th- they're high on heroin. I think it depends on who is taking it hmm. and what their intentions of taking it are. Before so- you inject, the needle asks, what are your intentions <laughs> with me? Are you here because you'd like me to help you perform on stage? Are you here because you want to take a nap and can't? <laughs> and you also want to dream of cats with 20 heads? Yes. Which one is it? And I will help you with realize that dream. But I mean, heroin definitely helps people become somebody else sometimes. Yeah. And maybe he wanted that macho dude to come out. No, I'm sure. Because that's A, the times. You're supposed to be macho. Uh, And B, he he never had that father figure. and And that was also just... The rock and roll culture, of course, at that time, like it, it was around. So why not do it? And if yeah, it helps you, know. if it helps you get on stage and do what you want to do, then you know all the better. Yeah. So yeah, he had his heroin addiction, coke and alcohol addictions, and this landed him in the hospital in June 1976 Ooh. after contracting hepatitis from using <gasps> a dirty needle. I mean, taking heroin isn't safe. No. Or smart. No. And he wasn't doing it smartly either. No. He was using dirty needles. Yeah. Because I also feel like back then, we didn't, like, understand. Yeah. 
the correlation yeah. between dirty needles and hep C. Yeah, like maybe if somebody shoves that needle into their vein, you shouldn't just rip it out of their hands and shove it into your vein. Might not want to do that. It's kind of gross. Blech. Yeah. So his stint in the hospital end up, ended up costing the band a tour opening for Rainbow. Which, whatever. I'm just kidding. Well, Rainbow at that point... At that point was huge. ...was... Um, Richie Blackmore and Ronnie James Dio. Oh, no, I know. I'm just being an asshole right now. I was just trying to make them feel better, Ashley, okay? Like, (laughs) whatever. It's just rainbow, guys. It's fine. You guys are being rainbow. We'll bounce right back. It's like a rainbow in the dark. (laughs) My God, it all makes sense. (laughs) He spent a couple months in a Manchester hotel recovering in mid-1976 the downtime allowed Phil to write most of the songs that would appear on Thin Lizzy's next album, Johnny the Fox. Mm. After this release from the hospital, the band went into the studio with John Alcock, <laughs> who also <laughs> produced Jailbreak. We can't go a whole episode without making I a know, dick joke, guys. Tension between the band members was rampant during the recording sessions, especially between Phil and guitarist Brian Robertson. Other Brian, come on. Other Brian, Jesus. Everyone argued about the direction of the band, and other Brian, in particular, was miffed when he wasn't credited with co-writing some songs, which is understandable. Legit. The tension didn't stop their hard partying ways, however. If anything, it made it worse. Oh, yeah. Like, if you have to hang out with somebody that you're having beef with, you know what's going to make that easier? Drugs. Drugs. (laughs) Yeah. After finding massive success around the world with Jailbreak, Phil became a well-known hard partying rock star. He could out-party, out-drink, out-drug, and out-womanize anyone. Oh. It was all downhill from from here. Phil. Come on, Phil. I was rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. I. We have never talked to a guy like this. Right? Like, I really was like, all right, he's got the drugs, but he treated women great. Oh, crap. God damn it. His sexual exploits were well documented even when he was in relationships. Whether it was drugs, alcohol, or just his personality, he was extremely possessive of his girlfriends, even as he fucked his way around the world while they waited for him at home. I can't with that shit? Yeah. Go fuck yourself. He even got married in 1980. Oh. um, To the mother of his two children. Okay. And continue to just fuck around on her. But it's fine because I'm a rock star. Is it though? No. Because I don't think it is. It's not. As long as, if it's not an agreement between the two of you that that is okay. Right. It's not okay. And here's the thing. If you're going to say I get to cheat, then that person gets to cheat too. Oh, yeah. Like then you just have an open relationship. Yes. That shit don't work if only one of you gets to have your knickers in a twisty. (laughs) Knickers in a twisty? Knickers in a twisty. Oh, she twistied my knickers real good the other night. Mm, She's so angry. She's getting her knickers in a twisty. Anyway. So, yeah. Gail Barber, Phil's girlfriend around this time and subject of the song Still in Love With You. Oh. Recalled basically being stalked by Phil's friends while he was away on tour so that he could keep tabs on what she was doing while he continuously cheated on her with various women. (sighs) Phil. Come on, Phil. Like, I feel like 
if we just sat in a room with Phil for a couple hours and tried to explain to him why this isn't okay, maybe he would have gotten it. Well, I think he'd be more concerned about the fact that he doesn't have heroin or drugs of any kind while we're sitting there <laughs> talking to him. Can I get some heroin? No, Phil. No, you, you need not to listen. Allowed. I can't listen unless I he's have. Like, he's just sweating and vomiting. <laughs> and we're like, maybe this wasn't the best <laughs> time to time. do this. No, we're going to leave. You stay here. Yeah. We'll come back get when clean, you're better. <laughs> Things came to a head in December 1976, when yet another U.S. tour had to be canceled after Brian Robertson broke his hand in a bar fight. Oh. Phil was pissed off and replaced Robertson on their next tour opening for Queen, <gasps> asking former guitarist Gary Moore to fill in. As the drummer. Guitarist. Oh, oh. Other, other Brian. Brian. Other Brian. Oh. Fuck other Brian. Yeah. I'm already done with him. <laughs> I'm sorry. Done He's with still you, other here. Brian. <laughs> I thought you left. Robertson was never really fired, but not asked back until halfway through recording the band's next album, Bad Reputation, in 1977. Hmm. Even still, he was treated as a guest on the album, not a full member of the He's band. He's a session musician, right? Basically. Oof. That's basically what he was treated like. Oof. There was still tension between him and Phil, and even with the other band members, as he wouldn't even socialize with them when he got into the studio. <laughs> The album, which was produced by Tony Visconti, longtime collaborator of David Bowie, was released in September 1977, but it's obvious from the cover image that Brian Robertson still wasn't welcome. The cover featured a black and white photo of the band as a three-piece, sans Robertson. Ooh. Hey, was Tony Visconti okay with this, though? <laughs> Tony Cannoli Visconti. He has no pizza in the pastas. <laughs> It wasn't the cover art the band originally wanted either. Their usual covers were drawings created by artist Jim Fitzpatrick. Mm -hmm. But in a hilarious mishap, Phil flew to the U.S. to discuss the artwork at his at Jim's home in Madison, Connecticut. But Phil instead flew to Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> How you fuck that up? I don't know. Wacky. <laughs> Yo, no, I do know. Like, drugs. 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 Also, I, you know what? And I'd probably be the same way with, I used to confuse Newcastle, England with Newcastle, Australia. They're very different places. Very different. So you know what? I'm going to let that slide because A, drugs, but B, why are there two Madisons? I don't know. They're probably looking at like, because Ireland's just such a small country. They're like, why the fuck are there two Madisons? No, this was in Madison. These are Madison. No, no, no. Oh, but like but you're like saying, they're, an they're... Irish person is like, why are why are there multiple Madisons? Yeah. Okay. That's. I mean, I'm tr I'm trying to get Phil a pass here. That's yeah. all I'm saying is I'm trying to give him a pass. You know what? Drugs. It's drugs. It's drugs, <laughs> guys. Never mind. It's yeah. just drugs. With the deadline looming, they quickly grabbed an old photo and slapped it on the cover instead. And the album did really well, reaching number four on the UK charts, and it spawned the hit spawned a hit with the song Dancing in the Moonlight. Which is a jam. Parentheses, it's caught me in its spotlight. They wanted to continue the success they found working with Tony Visconti, but since he wasn't available for a full album recording, he helped the band put together a quote unquote live album. Oh. I put the word live in quotes because there's controversy about how live the album actually is. Hmm. While the album Live and Dangerous features songs played in front of a live audience, 
a lot of the songs were redubbed in the studio to make them sound better. Okay. Visconti says that 75% of the songs were studio recordings, with only the drums and audience being live. Oh. But the band maintains that 75% of the songs were indeed live, with only some overdubbing here and there to clean up the sound. Mm. So... When you get a whole bunch of drug addicts into a studio together to record a sort of live album, whose memory are you supposed to trust? Probably the guy who's not high on drugs. There isn't one that's not high on drugs. Oh my god. <laughs> that's what no I'm saying. No one. You don't trust You, don't, you, you know can't what? trust anybody. The truth somewhere in the middle. I'm going to say somewhere like 50/50. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Either way, Live and Dangerous was a hit, reaching number 2 on the UK charts. With only the Grease movie soundtrack preventing it from hitting number one. Which, fuck you. Really? Grease is Grease. the actual worst. It is. Grease isn't the word. Horrible. Grease is the worst. Yeah. Grease is the worst. Is the worst. Is the worst. Yeah, it's the fucking worst. No, seriously. I fucking hate that movie. I hate the fucking music. <laughs> I hate the I hate soundtrack. everything about it. I hate every single person on it. Yeah. Pretty sure it needs to just burn. And just never There's show like up on the television people. ever There's again. There's like two people who were in Greece that I like. Who? Uh, I don't know. Was it Rizzo and... Rizzo's cool. And the beauty school dropout? Frenchie. Frenchie. I like Rizzo and Frenchie. That's it. But like, I, I liked Frenchie. She was like one of the few that I liked. Yeah. And then getting bits and pieces of it later in my life, I'm like, nah, Frenchie's fucking annoying. Oh, okay. Sorry. As you can tell, Greece pisses us off. And I'm really mad that they beat out Tin Lizzy. Yeah. Sorry, not sorry, but Greece I'm sucks. never sorry. Greece can blow it. <laughs> it's still considered one of the best live albums ever made. Okay. But it all fell by the wayside, though, as Phil's drug problem continued to get worse. Damn it. Tony Visconti tried to talk to Phil about it, as even Tony, who was a massive drug addict, too, was concerned. When you... <laughs> When the massive drug addicts in your life are concerned about your drug taking, yeah. maybe you should listen to them. Choices. Phil's response was basically, I've been doing this since I was a kid so I can handle it. After that, Tony refused to work with the van ever again. Tony Vistruggy. Tony, Tony, Tony. Problems between Phil and other Brian finally came to a head. Gary Moore once again swooped in to save the day, permanently replacing other Brian when he left the band for good in mid-1978. Good. It was a turning point for the band. This was 1978. Punk was taking over, replacing Mm. old man rock and roll. The Sex Pistols were taking the UK by storm, and people were starting to view blues-infused rock bands as old news. And Phil was acutely aware of this shift and didn't want to be shoved aside, So he made a pretty calculated decision to get in with the punk scene before they could shove him out of the way. Interesting. So how did he do this? How did he do this? Drugs. Oh, 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 Oh. yeah, yeah. If there was one commonality between rock bands and punk bands, it was drugs. (laughs) Phil became good friends with Sid Vicious, Steve Jones, and Paul Cook of the Sex Pistols. He also became close friends with Bob Geldof, who at this time was leading the Boomtown Rats. Mm-hmm. Some members of the three bands even started a side project called the Greedy Bastards, solidifying Phil's cred in the realm of punk. Okay. Because they're probably like, yo, this grandpa's pretty cool. <laughs> even though he's like, I'm 30. And they're like, thanks, grandpa. Not even. 78. He was like 28. 
29. 28 or 29? Because he was born at 49. Yep. So he's like 29-ish. Yeah. He's not even 30. Yeah, and they're like, this grandpa. Thanks, grandpa. Cool gramps. Could you imagine when you were 29, someone calling you grandma? But weren't the sex pistols around the same age-ish? Yeah, but I feel like they would call him grandpa. Probably. Thanks well, for your grandpa's Well, this guitars. grandpa has all of the heroin contacts, so shut the fuck up. Grandpa heroin, thank you. <laughs> But this dabbling in punk did nothing to quell Phil's drug use. During the recording... Yeah, I feel like it'd probably make it worse. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because now he had friends to do heroin with. I mean, he still did heroin with some of his bandmates, but now he had, like, more friends to do it with. Guys, I have so many friends to do heroin with now. Yeah. During the recording of Thin Lizzy's next album, Black Rose, A Rock Legend, drugs were everywhere. Phil and the band were so reliant on it that they could not even perform if they weren't fucked up. That's what I'm saying. Like, eventually with heroin, it, it, it comes back around and bites you in the ass. Yeah. You become that alter ego that heroin allows you to exude. But you don't actually know what's going on no, anymore either. not at all. Yeah, no. It was all too much for Gary Moore, who, after playing a show in California on the 4th of July, quit the band for good. Too many fireworks? It spooked him. I bet. <laughs> It's like a little puppy. Yeah. It's like, oh, I don't like fireworks. I'm going to hide under the bed. They found him in the bathtub. And he's also so strung out on heroin. I was mostly blaming the heroin (laughs) on that. I don't know if Gary Moore did heroin, but I'm sure he at least drank a fuck ton. Yeah. He's fucked up enough. Yeah. Once again, the band cycled through temporary guitarists to fill Gary's place, finally settling on Snowy White in 1980. Okay. Sure. Sure. Why not? Why not? The band's next album, Chinatown, was released later that year to continued Mm. success. Their song Killer on the Loose reached the top 10 in the UK, although it was met with a whole lot of criticism. At the time, serial killer Peter Sutcliffe, known as the Yorkshire Ripper, was wreaking havoc on England, and the song was a bit too on the nose. Whoops. This was when the band started falling apart. This is when the band started falling this apart? This is when, okay. like, this is when even Phil started falling apart. Oh, God. Escalating drug problems were ravaging the band, especially Phil. Both Brian Downey and Scott Gorham had to leave Thin Lizzy's European tour because of health issues brought on by drug use. Oh, jeez. Snowy White left in 1982, fed up with Phil's constant reliance on heroin. The band even lost their manager, too fed up with their bullshit to keep reeling them in. Despite all this, they pulled their shit together enough to record another album, Thunder and Lightning, which would be their last studio album. Mm -hmm. They embarked on their last tour in 1983, though Phil was adamant that it wouldn't be their last. Hmm. But Scott, for his part, was over it all. Part of that was because of a difficult tour in Japan where the heroin-addicted band members couldn't get their hands on it. Playing uh, shows was complete hell if you were suffering from withdrawal. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Because yep. no. if you go to a country you haven't been to before, you don't have those contacts that can get you heroin and, easily. And honestly, Japan is one of those countries that is so anti-drug. It's yeah. very difficult to get drugs, especially without having a connection. Yeah. Japan is that country that bands of this era that are really into drugs have a really hard time going to and yes. always have a shit tour there because they don't have contacts and can't get their drugs. Right. Because everything is, I th- 
I want to say a lot of it's connected through the Yakuza, and that's why it's so taboo and it's yeah. so illegal. I mean, like, people get, like, life sentences for that shit. I can imagine. Like, Japan you never is hear about drug about drugs. Yeah. In Japan. Thin Lizzy's last concert ever was at the Monsters of Rock show on September 4th, 1983. Well, shit. Phil immediately continued with his solo career, taking care to continue his heroin use as much as possible. <sighs> Ex-Thin Lizzy band members played with Phil on his future solo efforts and contributed to his new band, Grand Slam, which came out at the end of 1983. Is that like he's playing for Denny's? <laughs> Maybe. Is that the Denny's soundtrack? Maybe. Better than Shoney's, I guess. Def- That's even their album. Better than Shoney's. Better than Shoney's. <laughs> <laughs> dedicated to those two DJs in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> Who didn't give up on us. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Grand Slam toured extensively, and audiences loved them, but record labels did not want to bite because they were well aware of Phil's drug and alcohol abuse. Mm. A lot of critics also labeled the band a poor man's version of Thin Lizzy. Whoa. So labels didn't see the value in signing them. That's fucked up. Yeah, but... I get it. I get it. But also, if they're getting the fan base, then why not? Fans are the money. Yeah. But again, even with Thin Lizzy, like they had the audience, but they didn't really have the sales. So Mm, 1980s, everyone is about album sales. They want to make the money on the album. So if your album isn't going to sell immediately, then I can see why they wouldn't want to sign them. Yeah. If consumerism ever became a thing, it would definitely have been in the 80s. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Grand Slam broke up in 1984, and Phil continued to record music, collaborating with his old bandmates and friends, including Huey Lewis and the News. Oh! He was good friends with Huey Lewis for a long time. Do you know what? He's a good guy. He is. He's a real good guy. That means he's officially a good guy. Yeah. Because even on heroin, Huey Lewis is like, nah, this is it. No, I like this guy. I'll let you know. Yeah. This is love. And I'm going to just say so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing was ever officially released except for two singles. The first, Out in the Fields, was a hit for Phil in 1985. Mm. The second single was called 19 and was released towards the end of 1985. The success of 19 afforded Phil the opportunity to be back in the spotlight. He performed the song on various television shows and gave a number of interviews where he expressed optimism about the future. This downtime was allowing him to spend more time with his family and take some deep dives into Celtic music, which he seemed eager to do. But all the optimism in the world can't compete with drug abuse, and his optimism about a future with his family and music was just a dream. By now, Phil was living in Kew, outside of London, by himself. He long ago sent his wife Caroline, who he married in 1980, Mm -hmm. and their two daughters to live in Ireland, For the specific purpose of being able to cheat on her without her knowing. (sighs) Although I'm sure she fucking knew. Oh, no. Girl knew. Yeah. The days of Thin Lizzy, the biggest band in the UK, were long behind him, and his dependence on heroin was completely out of control. The years and years of drug and alcohol abuse caught up to him on Christmas Day, 1985, when he collapsed at his home near London. Philomena, Phil's mother, found him unconscious. She had no idea he even had a drug problem. Wow. I don't know how he managed to keep that from her, but wow. Yeah. But Phil's wife, Caroline, did know and quickly transported him to a drug clinic. 
The issue was too troublesome for the clinic to handle, so he was brought to a hospital where he was diagnosed with sepsis. <gasps> Eleven days after he first collapsed, on January 4th, 1986, Phil passed away from heart failure and pneumonia brought on by a sepsis. Oh my god. He was only 36 years old and left behind two young daughters, Sarah and Kathleen. Oh my god. Yeah. That is a fucking horrible, horrible way to go. That's so sad. That's how old we are. Yeah. So he would have passed away after all that time, after everything he did, after trying so hard with Thin Lizzy. Yes. And trying so hard after that to have a solo career and like just not having it go anywhere. He died basically by himself in his in his uh, place in London. Yeah. Was he just in a coma after that? Yeah, he was just unconscious. He, like, woke up from his coma once to talk to his mom and then fell back into it. I mean, at least he got to talk to her one more time. Yeah. But still. Yeah. And since he has passed away, the various other members of Thin Lizzy have come together time after time to, like, do tributes to him Mm -hmm. and play reunion shows and all that stuff. Philomena has also tried really hard to keep his memory alive and fairly recently, they put up a statue of Phil in Dublin. Oh, really? I think it's in Dublin. Um, and she I'm was sure. there to for the dedication and everything. Oh shit! Now I feel bad that I didn't search that out when I was in Dublin in August. Yeah. Well, now I know. For the next time I go to look for that. Now you know. Wow, that's damn. That's sad because I feel like it's so unnecessary and so. It sucks that his heroin addiction happened at all, let alone happened at a time when people were not as understanding of how bad it is. Yeah. And understanding of how it can totally devastate your life. Yeah. And honestly, Sex Pistols kind of glamorized it. Oh, they 100% did. And a lot, I think, I'm sorry, like a lot of the 70s and 80s artists... Yeah, made heroin look cool because they didn't understand. Yeah. Um, and I think Phil had this just deep-seated need to be accepted. Of course. By people. Um, maybe it was because he was somewhat abandoned by both of his parents when he right. was ki- a kid. Maybe it was because he was the only black boy that was growing up in his school in Dublin mm-hmm. or something like that. But he just had such a deep-seated need for acceptance that... I think heroin was so pervasive and so accepted in his circle of friends that he did it to be accepted. I think that's why he got in with the punk guys, too, because heroin and access to heroin made him a friend and made him accepted. Yeah. With these punk guys when he wasn't a punk guy at all. Like you said, it gave him the courage. It gave him this self-esteem boost that... I'm sure if you are treated like an outcast and you're a kid, when you get older, it's really hard to go up on stage and pretend like everyone's not looking at you and judging you harshly. And that could have been part of his stage fright, too. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm wondering, because it sounds like he was trying it for years and years without the, like, probably some weed, some alcohol, maybe some speed. Yeah. But... It didn't work. Like, to have to go to heroin... Like, you have some deep-seated self-esteem issues. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And I think he did. As as self-assured and 
you know, almost cocky as he was in real life, mm-hmm. I think that was just a front for how he was really on the inside. I think he always wanted to be that macho hero that the hero from the comic books or like you know the lone ranger in cowboy song yeah he always wanted to be that very quintessential dude and that's probably why he was a womanizer too like the act of conquering was something that he really wanted and honestly back then if you were a quote-unquote man's man like you had control of your woman yeah and it's that's disgusting, and I'm really glad we're working out of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I definitely think that there is a lot of yeah, it's a toxic masculinity. Yeah, and he had a lot of different, sh- a lot of different things going yeah. on he in his head on. that he was trying to fix with heroin, and heroin was not the answer. No, heroin and heroin ended up killing him in the end truthfully yeah and i mean just like it killed most people who started in the 60s and 70s with heroin and they're like i can do this and it's like no you can't but you can't though yeah just because you've been doing this since you were like 16 doesn't mean you have control over it yeah it actually just means that it's had control over you for that long yeah which is sad and it sucks and unfortunate that you never got to know what your life was like outside of that exactly so yeah and it's interesting too. Um, just to know feeling out feeling as an outsider yeah. it's kind of like back to our tricky episode where he didn't know where he belonged because he's from a black family and a white family right and you don't know where you belong and it'd probably be even more so with some place in ireland where there really aren't a ton of people of color yeah so it's hard to find where you really go but that shouldn't even really fucking matter, should it? <laughs> it shouldn't. Like, as I'm saying this, I'm like, but that shouldn't fucking matter. Like, it's, yes, color is real and it exists, but it should exist just in, like, I don't know, an identifier? Not as, yeah, like, a class thing. Exists. Not as a personality thing. Not as a, like, it shouldn't make you a different person. Yeah. You know? I... And it just goes back to, like, everything that's been going on recently. It's just, they never ask to come to any of our countries, guys. <laughs> True. Systemic racism. This shit's been a long time coming. Yeah. And also, Native Americans never asked for their land to be taken over, pillaged, or their people raped. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Here like, we are. The moral of the story is, sit down, white people. Yeah. <laughs> Sit the fuck down. Yeah. If anybody... And don't do heroin. Yeah. Yeah. Can we not do that? Can we stop with the heroin? Yeah, that would be great. I mean, we went for a long time without talking about it, but we are back at zero. We are back at zero. Don't do heroin. Don't be a racist fuck. Yeah, that too. Like, guys, there's just there's so many lessons from here, but... And don't be a classist fuck. And, like, just... God damn it. I hate everything. And you know what? The moral of the story is I hate everything right now. But also speak up for your fellow POCs and donate to black-led organizations and bail reform and yeah. Black Lives Matter. And also let's eat the rich. Yeah. Can we, we do need that? to eat the rich. I am down for a good old just cannibalistic dinner. Look, I know I'm like on pescatarian Nah, I eat, eat some rich anymore. bitches. I eat some rich bitches, though. Mm-hmm. I'd break that shit you know for what? eating some rich. Tastes fucking good. Let's get rid of the classism, the racism, and the sexism. Let's do it. 2020. Hashtag we over it, though. 
Yeah. Thanks for listening to our story, guys. Hashtag enough with Jennifer Lopez. <sighs> guys, like Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> We've had enough. You right, though. Oh, yeah. So we hope you guys like the story of Thin Lizzy. <laughs> we hope you guys know more about the band, but specifically, Phil, who is Thin Lizzy? Yeah. And Thin Lizzy. And despite um his unfortunate heroin addiction, he deserves so much respect and everyone needs to keep putting him on fucking lists. Yes. Just put put them on all the best ever lists ever he, because he really doesn't get the respect he no, deserves. No, he's an amazing lyricist. He's a great singer. He he's also a good released bassist. two books of poetry, by the way. He is an actual poet. Yeah. I should actually grab one of those. They're very good. His right. lyrics are amazingly poetic. And that's basically what his books of poetry are, are just tons and tons of lyrics that he wrote over the years. And you know what? Like, to p- just make it... Make, I shouldn't even have to fucking make him a person, but here we are. He was a nerd. <laughs> he was an artist. Yeah. He was a musician. Like, he, he was a person who had, like, emotions and feelings. He's not different because of the fucking color of his skin. And the great thing is that he certainly was not perfect. No, he wasn't. But he never said he was either. Yeah. Yeah. I think he f- knew full well that he was not a perfect person. I'd like to think that if he didn't do the drugs, maybe he wouldn't have been a crazy possessive boyfriend. <laughs> Let's hope so. I mean, as far as I know, he didn't hurt anybody. He this was just as far as I possessive. Know. He, he didn't hurt anybody. He was just stupidly possessive. Um, but also don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that either. Might not want to do that because, you know, you can go to jail for shit like that. So. It's gross and it's creepy. Don't do yeah, that. Yeah, don't do that. You want to um, get pussy? Just just be a nice person. Yeah. But, yeah. But yeah, that's that's the story. Um, it's been It's been a time, guys. And just let's try to do our best to support our people of color to celebrate them and be and, there, be there, and just help, help however they ask and to help. If you are a white person, yes, use your privilege as a way of speaking out against racism and educating your fellow white people on how they need to appropriately act. Yep, and appropriate things to say because that is our job. Yeah, our job is, like you said, to tell your racist uncle, "Hey, no, that's not cute." Yeah, and even your. You know, well-meaning coworker who thinks it's okay to say, you know, low-key racist shit. It's not okay. No, it's not. And and it's okay to just at this feel point, brave and say, you know what? I don't think that's okay. Yeah, because at this point, I'm totally fine with making awkward work situations <laughs> if it means that somebody realizes they need to shut the fuck up. Yep. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Same. Um, and if you don't like the fact that we are tying this into Black Lives Matter, too you bad. Can go right ahead and stop fucking listening to our <laughs> podcast because yeah. we don't fucking want you here. Yeah. Get the fuck out. Yep. Get the fuck out. Shut your fucking mouth. Scoot your butt out of here because right. I am not dealing with it anymore. I'm done. We're done. We are all done. But, you know, I've guys, had it. Just, just be kind. Be good people. You know what I have had? It. It. <laughs> Done. I've heard that she's had it. <laughs> Guys, ladies and gentlemen, Ashley Ellis you has it, had it. You hear it first. Ashley Ellis has had it. <laughs> <sighs> Thank you for listening. Right, yeah. We do love you. We appreciate you. 
We hope that you guys are on the same level as us with just, you know, I hope so. Kindness and being a decent human being. Yeah. Period. Like that's all we want from people is to be decent. Uh, We're going to try to spend the week, you know, mostly just celebrating um, artists of color and telling their stories, even just like little snippets as we can, because You know what? It's there's too many white people on our feed. Let's yeah. let's if we're let's, if we're doing this, yeah, we got to talk about people other than white people. Yeah, and you know what? As Lizzo said, life's better in color. It is. It is. I agree um, with that. And you know what? Um, I know that our network 100 percent backs us up. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, and it's also filled with lovely, wonderful humans who are also behind this movement mm-hmm. and want to tell stories of every color of the music rainbow so please go support our network yes please and also if you feel like supporting us i'm not going to really try and hawk it too hard no you can go to our patreon if you want if you want to it's patreon.com slash rock candy podcast we will definitely thank our newest patron our newest patron chuck yeah, Chuck. Thank you so much. <laughs> Super nice dude. Bow, 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 bow. With oh great stories. Great stories. So. I honestly am like, maybe Chuck should start a podcast because you got some stories, my you really dude. really could. You might want to think about that. think about that. Just throwing that out there for you. And uh, I mean, if you want to give to us, but you know, honestly, it, uh, I that's, think it doesn't matter right now. It doesn't matter right now. Honestly, you want to give to Black Lives Matter or bail organizations. I think that would be great. And you know what? It's January, or not January, it's June 1st, which means Pride Month. And it's a Pride Month, so it's, we got a new, like, cycle of Patreon stuff coming our way, so maybe we should think about donating it this month. Yeah. You know what? I think that's a good idea. Yeah. So thank you guys for donating, for donating your money to our Patreon. We're probably going to donate it. Yeah, we're going to donate it to organizations that we love and support, probably a mix of Pride and... Black Lives Matter. Um, if we can find some sort of um, black trans organization. LGBTQ. Something like that. Yeah, LGBTQ of color. Idea. You know what? Honestly, yeah. You know what? For the next week or two, we'll take your guys' suggestions and we'll let you know where we donate our Patreon money to. Yeah, if you know of any um, in particular that would be a good idea, yeah. send it our way. Yeah, let us know if you guys have any suggestions because we would love to just... We're trying to support where how we where we can yeah. put our money where our mouths are, and maybe I'll even match it. Same. There you go. Well, you know what? You guys go ahead. Maybe we'll do a poll if you give us some suggestions, and we'll do a poll to figure out where we could match. Um, what best organization to donate to? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I like that. There we go. Look at that. Thinking on my toes. Oh my god. Also with booze. <laughs> How about that? No heroin. <laughs> just alcohol. I don't do alcohol either. I don't know. Nah, just don't. Just, just don't do away heroin. From it. God damn it. Just stay just away from it. Just don't do heroin, guys. God yeah. damn it. Anyway, yeah. so that's the end of our show. Okay. Yeah. Come back in next week. Have more stories. Be good times. Good laughs. And until then, party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. And party on, kids. And Black Lives Matter. With a rope around its neck that left them hanging High from that old hanging tree On her knees his wife was screaming Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy I believe in the freedom song Long live the liberty I believe in the freedom song
song. 